0: In these weeks in the book of Romans, uh, Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul. But if we backed up the story even before his conversion in Acts chapter 9, we see that Paul, Saul, by any religious standard, was a righteous man. And you see this in some of Paul's writings later that he begins to talk about how he had achieved a certain level in Judaism, in his religion, and he would consider himself blameless according to the law. He took the Old Testament law and he, he meticulously sought to live his life according to what God had said. All the rules meticulously going through. So Paul would have considered himself blameless according to the law. Not only that, he was zealous for the things of God. He was passionate to do whatever it was that God called him to do, and which specifically gets us to Acts chapter 9, because in his pursuit to live a zealous life for God, He was persecuting those he felt had departed from the book, the Christians, and was on his way to arrest them, have them imprisoned, and vote to have them put to death. And he encounters on the road to Damascus, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. You can read that story in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Most of you know the story, but... There is a great light that day. Do you remember what direction the light came from? The appropriate response would be up. <laughs> in fact, it, later he tells us in his testimony: it was about noon, but there was a light that came from above him that was so bright, it outshined the sun it's the noonday sun. Do you remember what? Saul of Tarsus response when he saw the light from above it sent him down to his knees if not on his face and the voice comes Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Saul says who are you Lord and the voice comes back I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting what do you want me to do go into the city of Damascus and you will be told what to do and uh, we know in that story that a man by the name of Ananias comes and is a part of Paul's transformation of life and baptizes Saul Um, and Saul's life is completely transformed by that encounter. The thing that strikes me, and I, I want to make relevant this morning, is that when the before the, son, the Jesus appeared to him, Paul, if you would ask him, what is your standing before God? Saul of Tarsus said, I am a righteous man. I am blameless according to the law. I am with God. I am in a perfect standing with him. But when Jesus Christ appeared to him, and it sent him to his knees and he had the experience of being blinded for the next three days when, when Saul of Tarsus came out the other side three days later he saw his life differently then even though he was a saved man at that point and I think he summarizes this in, in 1 Timothy 1:15. he said this is a faithful statement uh, That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And here's the phrase, Of whom I am the chief. That's years later. When Paul came out the other side, he said, No, but if you ask me where I am, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. He would say, because I persecuted the church of God. I was as bad as I could be. And isn't it amazing how his whole perception flips through an encounter with the risen Lord? Put that story in your head for later. Second story is the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Um, I know. Brother Shane and Brother Byron. Brother Ed, no Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the rest of you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the prince of preachers among Baptists. He lived in the second half of the 1800s. Still today, I would say Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the greatest of all Baptist preachers. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved when he was 15 years old, living in Colchester, England in the Eastern part of England. In fact, there's a little primitive Methodist church there that has a plaque on the back wall that commemorates January 6th, 1850. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved. About where Brother Fred's sitting back there is the way I remember. Or I pictured in my mind a plaque on the wall, and uh, <laughs> it was. It was a winter storm that hit Colchester, England on that January morning, and there was snow everywhere, and uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say that he set out for church, to find a church, and some of the churches were closed, and he came to that little primitive Methodist church, and there was only about 12 to 15 people there that day, and the preacher didn't even make it, and a layman stands up and preaches, and the only reason he preached was because there was a boy who appeared to be in a miserable state on the back row, and somebody said, somebody needs to say something. And he took from his text, Isaiah 45, Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And he, he, he in boldness, he looks at that young man on the back row. I'm pointing at Brother Fred this morning. Young man, you will be miserable for the rest of your life until you look to Jesus. And he, and he yells, he says, look to Jesus. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon says as a 15-year-old, in that moment he looked to Jesus and was saved. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that he left the house that morning to find a church because his soul was in such a miserable state because of his sin. He was looking for some kind of relief. In fact, he said as he walked in that snowstorm and he saw the whiteness of the snow, he said, it seemed that the whiteness of the snow mocked the filth in my heart. He said, I I walked and I saw in the fields the cows that were there, that were in the midst of that storm, just so peaceful. And he said, it just I envied the serenity of those cows that didn't have a care in the world. He was looking for some kind of relief. Um, uh, he uh, I started reading a couple months ago this little book Jesus Came to Save Sinners by Charles Haddon Spurgeon subtitled an, uh, an Earnest Conversation with Those Who Long for Salvation and Eternal Life in fact it sparked this whole series of sermons and he talks about this extreme burden over his sin that he had as a 15-year-old that came to that climax that January, Sunday morning, 1850. And he said, I'm sorry to read, but he says it better than I could characterize it. He says, while under the hand of the Holy Spirit, I was convicted of sin. I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became an intolerable burden to me. It wasn't so much that I feared hell, but that I feared sin. I knew I was horribly guilty and felt that if God didn't punish me for sin, he ought to condemn such sin as mine. I sat on the judgment seat, and I condemned myself to death. I admitted that if I were God, I could do nothing other than send such a guilty creature as me to the lowest hell. While going through this, I also had a deep concern for the honor of God's name and the integrity of his moral leadership on my mind. It didn't set right with my conscience that I could be forgiven unjustly. The sin I committed had to be punished. I struggled with the question of how God could be just and yet justify me, the guilty. In my heart I asked, how can he be just and yet the justifier? I was, I was worried and wearied with this question and couldn't see any answer to it. Certainly I could never have invented an answer that would satisfy my conscience. summarizes it in one sentence early in the book, and he says, In my own case, I was stuck with such a horrible sense of guilt that it made my life miserable. That was the spiritual state that Charles Spurgeon was in the morning he was saved. It is interesting to me in the two stories of Saul and Spurgeon. Both men were sinners, but both men saw their lives differently. I actually, I kind of wanted to get that sense of you've got Saul of Tarsus who considered himself righteous. And you had Spurgeon who considered himself to be the scum of the earth. Both of the men were sinners. And both were in need of a Savior. And both were saved. Out of that perspective of their life, Jesus saved both of them. The first step for so great a salvation is to see the enormous gap between God's righteousness and our sin. To see the height of a righteous God and the depths of my sin. If there's a visual that I want you to picture this morning, it's that. The height and the greatness of a righteous God and the depths of mankind in their sin and I, I'm, just, I'm a visual guy hmm. and all I can picture this morning is God's righteousness is at the top of that ceiling and my sins at the bottom part of this floor and there's a great, ga- there's a great gap there and I want you to see that, that gap, that divide as we talk about this this morning. Paul wrote about his own experience of salvation, I believe, in the book of Romans. And I believe he writes about where he was and where other people are like him before conversion. In 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 Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith, in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference and then Romans 3 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ the heart of that passage Is verse 23, for all have sinned. But it's that phrase, and fall short of the glory of God. And when I visually hear the glory of God, my mind's eye goes to the ceiling. The glory of God. And me falling short in my sin. And the great gap. We're going to talk about how in our minds we process this great gap. And there's several approaches for us to try to do it apart from God. And Paul talks about those. Paul was there. But I want you to see that gap in your mind. I I really need us... To talk about two key words in the book of Romans, and it is the word righteous and the word justify. Ah uh, wow, you're talking about churchy words. Righteous and justify. They're words that we see in our scriptures that we've read today, but quite honestly, Romans is filled with these two. Words righteous and justify. If it helps you in your understanding, I want you to see that the root of each of these words are the same word. And so if you shorten righteous to right and you shorten justify to just, right and just, I'm saying in English, maybe have a little bit different connotation but in the original language in the Greek they are the same word to be right means to be perfect and I want you to understand that righteousness is first something that is a part of God's character it is who God is God is righteous and in fact I'll probably say this later But God in all of his attributes is perfect in all of those attributes. And so I would say at this point, it's not just that God is righteous. God is perfectly righteous. In any sense we have of being right stems from the fact that righteousness is a part of God. He is pure. He is right. He is just. And that's fine when we talk about righteous as a characteristic of God, the question becomes, what does it look like for us to be righteous? The problem is, Romans 3:23 has already told us that we have all sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God. So we cannot be righteous in the same sense that God is righteous, but we can, He can bestow His righteousness upon us and declare us or make us righteous. And what it denotes for us as human beings, if we are righteous, we are in a right standing with God. I'm right. We're right. And in fact, that's the sense of justify. Justify means to be declared or made righteous. Um, As I said... In Paul's writing, in the original Greek, they are the same word. One is an adjective, or it can be a noun if we say righteousness. The other is a verb, to justify, to declare, to make righteous, to declare innocent, to be in a right standing with God. And at the very heart of the book of Romans and salvation is how do we as sinners get right with God who is righteous? And that's what justify or justification is all about. Now, I don't know if that helps you this morning or hurts you or muddies the water or if you're more confused than when I started. But to justify means to declare or to be made righteous in a right standing with God. How as a sinner do I get in a right standing with God? There's two paths that Paul alludes to here. Uh, verse 20, Romans 3:20. Paul says, "Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin." Uh, this was Paul's approach. Paul sought by the deeds of the law to justify or to put his life in a right standing with God. Paul's perspective was that if I live a good life and I do uh, as best I can the things that God has said, then I'm going to be in a right standing with God. It is what I would call Paul was into self justifying himself, self-justifying, I'm going to live a such a life that if from my perspective I'm going to be in a right standing with God and Paul talks about that in, in verse 20 and it was his perspective of his life and it is the perspective of other people's life that by the deeds of the law I will justify my life except here Paul says on the other side of conversion, no flesh. You'll never, you'll never live a life that you can stand before God and say, God, I've done everything perfectly. I have to be in a right standing with you because of what I have done. It is impossible. That is part of the reason he's going to come to the conclusion in verse 23, for all have sinned. All have missed the mark. But verse 21 Romans 3.21 he says but now and what he means is now presently in the gospel sense of now that Jesus has done what he has done the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed wait a second can we put verse 21 on the screen he is saying that it is there is, there is something now that says, I can have the righteousness of God that is apart from the law, of me not fulfilling the law. God has made a way for me to be in a right standing with him that has nothing to do with what I have done or I have not done. In fact, he says it was witnessed by the law in the law in the Old Testament and the prophets. It is not by my works that I am made right with God. In fact, when we trust our works, we are only deceiving ourselves. It is a human, self-centered perspective that says, I can live a life that will be pleasing to God. That's my perspective. Remember the great gap? God's perspective is great, dif- quite different. Paul on the road to Damascus had that impression of his life that I am in a right standing with God until he met Jesus and he saw the glory of God and when he came out the other side he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I am the worst of the worst in the life that I have lived. It would take grace to redeem me from where I was at. All of us, verse 23, Fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up, we come up lacking. Paul has talked about this earlier in chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In fact, Paul would use the word sin throughout here, but there's two other words that Paul uses that is synonymous with sin. And it's interesting to me because one of them is unrighteous, that my sin, in my sin I was unrighteous. But he also said it was also I was ungodly. And I think that's interesting because one of the words for our falling short is sin, which means to miss the mark. But the other two words that are used throughout in Romans, unrighteous, which is just saying I'm not righteous, it's, a, it's an unword, un. And ungodly. God is righteous. God is godly. I, in my sin, I am unrighteous. I am ungodly. I am separated from God because of my life and my choices that I've made. And the implication is that because of our sin and falling so short, we are deserving of God's judgment. And He talks about that in chapter one and. Uh, verse 18 he says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and then he ends that chapter verse 32 who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. Um, I don't know what your perspective of your life is, but the picture that Paul paints, which I'm going to default to Paul on this one, okay, and not my opinion, my perspective of my own life, is the glory, the greatness of God is beyond (laughs) this roof. (laughs) It is more than my mind can comprehend that God is perfectly Righteous and that I am completely infected by sin. And you see, sometimes we kind of measure ourselves. I wanted to get these two little cute figurines, and I, I was gonna get in the toy box at, you know in that closet in our in the the new room, Madison, and I didn't know, I didn't. There was there was other stuff piled up there this morning, Amy Janelle. We need to talk after church, okay? There may be a new double stroller somehow. We don't even have any children, but anyhow, we have five grandchildren, but anyhow, I was going to get these two little figurines, and one was going to be like this, and one was going to be a little bit shorter like this, and I was going to have this like Mr. Bill voice. Anyhow, Brother Robin, thank you for laughing. Mr. Bill, it's like, oh, look at my life. It's so much better and bigger than your life. Oh, wow. I feel much. I look down on you because you're so much smaller than me. And I was going to put them up here on the podium. I was going to go, yeah, but how far short do both of them fall (laughs) from the glory of God? And I think sometimes, here's my point, is sometimes people see the gap and they say, well, I'm not going to worry about the gap. I'm just going to worry how I look to other people in comparison. And as long as I'm better than you, then I'll be closer to God and I'll be in a good standing because I'm better than you. But all have sinned and fall way short of the glory of God. I think there's three responses to the gap. Uh, Can we put the three responses on the screen? Shame, self-justify, confess. Hmm. Shame says, no, I I know. I know my sin. I know that I'm in a miserable state before God. I don't have to argue with God whether I'm better than other people or I'm good enough to get in. No, I'm so bad that I don't even believe that God could ever save a wretched sinner like me. And Satan gets in our head with shame that says, Oh, I don't doubt the glory of God. (laughs) And I don't doubt my sin. But what I don't see is there's any way to get right. Because my sin is so bad. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. was in shame he didn't know how God could ever save a sinner like him some of you maybe were there Are you there today to say oh preacher you don't really have to convince me of my sin I know about my sin and I know about the righteousness of God hmm that's not Daryl Smith's one Daryl Smith is the second one. I'm with the apostle Saul of Tarsus on this one. Self-justify. I'm going to live a life that proves to God that I'm righteous and I'm deserving of being in a right standing with him. That was my little figurine illustration. That's the tall guy. Oh, wow, I'm so much taller than you. Um. And we come at God with our self-justification of why we are so good. Oh, Spurgeon. He He has a quote. I underlined it and I highlighted it. That's really important in the book. He says, I dare to say that a sinner justified by God stands on a more certain footing than a righteous man justified by his works. Man, that hit me. If you're in the self-justify camp, are you brave enough to stand before God someday, a holy and righteous, perfectly holy and righteous God, and say, oh no, here's my life that I lived. I'm sure I'm in good standing." You know what the self-justify camp does? Is it it either lowers the righteousness of God to a level that oh I can reach up and I can touch God now. We lower God and we raise our perspective of ourselves so that it's just enough that I can reach it, but the little short guy can't. Right? We lower God. You know how we lower God? We say things like, oh, surely God understands. Oh, God's a forgiving God. He understands. God is not only righteous, he's perfect in all of his attributes. He is perfectly righteous. God cannot condone any sin. there will be no sin in heaven no not one because God is not just righteous he is perfectly righteous and what I'm telling you what Paul begins to do is said no 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 what Paul didn't understand was the glory of God and His righteousness that exposed his sin and his self-righteousness in fact this is just like hitting Daryl Smith in the face You know the people that are farthest away from God? Ow. It's not the people in shame. It's the people in the self justified category. You know how I know that? Because it's the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with when he walked this earth. Not the sinners in the shame but the Pharisees in the self-justified camp and Paul was one of those. We can either look at our sin and we can respond in shame or we can respond in self-justify mode <laughs> that Saul of Tarsus did in which he was trusting in his own righteousness to be in a right standing with God. Spurgeon fell in the shame camp and he wondered in his mind, I read it to you, how could God, how could a righteous and holy God bridge that gap that I cannot bridge? And God did. By his son Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. God found a way as a righteous God to justify an ungodly, unrighteous sinner into a right standing with him. The gap is so great that the only one who could bridge such a gap would have to be an almighty God, because I'm not able. In fact, Isaiah says that all my righteousness is as filthy rags when we get right down to it. Only God, an almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, all-just God, could somehow find a way. And there was only one way. And that was through Jesus Christ, his son. And by his death on the cross, he could bridge the gap for those who responded to their sin and shame. And for those who responded to their sin by self justifying, if only, and here it is, they confess that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the only way, and I surrender. I surrender my own pursuits of self-justifying to get right with God and say I'll never be right enough. And I also give up the sense of my shame that somehow, God, you wouldn't be powerful enough to save a sinner like me. And you see, if God doesn't have the power to save your sin, that means God is limited. He is not a perfect God, but God is perfect in all of his attributes, even His salvation does not matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter how low you are because God is perfect in his salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There is no sin. If if your sin was so bad that God could not forgive, it's not an indictment about you. It's an indictment about the God you believe in that God is limited. God is not limited. He is all-powerful. He is all gracious. He is all forgiving. It does not matter. But here's the point to the whole story. At least it's the starting point. All that he asks is that we confess. We agree with God. What he describes in the verses that I read, that we believe. The starting point of salvation, so great a salvation, is to acknowledge the glory and the righteousness of God in my sinful state. And that all God asks of me to start with is to say, yes, I agree. That Jesus is great enough to save me from my shameful sin. And that, God, you will also save me in my own pursuit to try to be made right with you. Spurgeon. I'm not going to read every week from Spurgeon, okay? I'm reading this week. One of his first chapters, he says, God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> he just makes this point. I go, wow, huh. that's good. Why did I think of that? salvation is for the sinner. We just got to deal with that. And if you're a sinner, Mm -hmm. the preacher's already said we all are, then you're the perfect candidate for God's amazing, great salvation. He says it in several ways, but he says, he says, if you are totally undone because of your sin, you are the very person aimed at in the plan of salvation. Pardon must be for the guilty The person who is a sinner is the kind of person Jesus Christ came to make clean. If you aren't lost, what do you want with a Savior? The sinner is the gospel's reason for existence. Forgiveness is for the guilty. This great mercy of God is meant for people like you and me. I couldn't help but think of the hymn at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. And that fourth verse. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. there's three things that I pray for in these series of sermons, three responses, one that you would experience salvation if you never have. I want in these weeks I want to make what it means to be safe just so blatantly clear that no one could walk away and said I don't really understand what it means when the Bible talks about being saved or salvation I just want to make it super clear with the intent that those who have never experienced it would experience it the second thing is that you would understand so great a salvation and maybe for some of us that have been saved for decades that we would be reminded of God's amazing grace and what Jesus Christ did for us that we could never do for ourselves and then finally that all of us would tell it it would be what is on our lips and what we would say to those we would never get beyond it it's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. It is what happened to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. They experienced it in the years that followed. They, be- they understood it, stood it in a greater and greater way. And then it was the passion of their life to tell it to everyone they encountered. Would you stand with me this morning and let me pray... As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, today we pray that your spirit would take the gospel message that has been proclaimed for 2,000 years and take it to the very core of each person's heart that hears this today. And Father, I pray that you would do your amazing work of salvation as we take that first step to confess, to agree with you that we are a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Father, I pray in these days that you would do your work of salvation that is only a work that God could do. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding and then you would give us passion to tell the message. And Father, we trust that to you and we pray it in Jesus' name.
1: Amazing grace how sweet the sound that
0: said, Amen. Devotional this morning, Psalm 107, 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, so let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So we're going to receive our offering at this time. Um, hey, just a couple things as the men are coming. There are prayer sheets for our next Africa trip that are in the year or you should have gotten these in your life group. This is a 21-day prayer guide. Starts uh, the 7th, so Cricket, that, would that be Friday? Starts this Friday, 21 days, specific ways that you can pray. Uh, David and Eli and I go uh, lead.